Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Rare Pedro podcast. Today, we have episode three of the Industry Leader Spotlight. And today, I am joined by my guest, Mr. Timothy Marcus. Thanks for joining us, Mr. Marcus. Thank you. It's uh, good to be here. Of course. Timothy Marcus is a Colorado School of Mines alumnus in petroleum engineering, was the founder and CEO of Benico Incorporated. His insight navigating the oil and gas landscape in multiple price environments applies to the industry today. Now a retired oil and gas professional, Tim has been involved in supporting education in Colorado through donations to Denver Public Schools and a grant to mines for the Marcus Hall Petroleum Building, which opened in 2012. Now, without any more hesitation, let's try and get into the questions. Everybody has an origin story in oil and gas. How exactly did you get into the oil and gas industry? You know, a, a lot of the things that have happened to me have, have happened just by luck or I, I, it's kind of funny. So the way I got into petroleum is um, I first, I, I went to Colorado School of Mines. I had a strong math and science uh, background and uh, you know, Golden's just down the road from where I grew up in Denver. And I liked the size of the school. I, I'd also looked at CU, but you know, I didn't get a warm fuzzy there. And, and uh, <clears throat> fortunately for me, I didn't know how bad, how tough mines was going to be. Um, <laughs> I, and I, I know we're all we all share that. <clears throat> so I, I went to mines, and it's, uh, my first year, I, I I didn't even know what an engineer was, um, but I saw this metallurgical engineer. And I go, God, that sounds cool, a metallurgical engineer. I had no idea what it was, but it sounded cool. So anyway, I declared uh, declared myself as a metallurgical engineer. But after my freshman year. Uh, my good friends, uh, most of which I'd gone to high school with in, in Southwest Denver, uh, they got jobs uh, in the oil industry, uh, you know, in field, uh, uh, field hands, and they made a ton of money. And I didn't have any money, and I saw how much they made, and <laughs> that's what prompted me to change into uh, petroleum. So I changed uh, when I was a sophomore and uh, worked the following summer. So total accidental that I became a petroleum engineer. Well, I got to say, money is a fantastic incentive, and I think I'd be lying if I neglected to say that that played into my decision just a little bit as well. But it sounds like it definitely put you on track. When would you say that in the industry you took a leadership role that really broke away from the rest of the path and established itself? Well, when I got out of school, I, I worked for a large uh, oil company, major oil company. Uh, it's no longer in existence. Union Oil Company later became Unical, and then later merged with Chevron. And I worked there about 12 years uh, at Unical, uh, initially in California, and then I got transferred to Europe, where I worked in uh, the Netherlands, England, and later Scotland. And the longer I worked for this particular large company, Unical the more disenchanted I became, I, I just felt like, you know, the company didn't have a vision. Um, they didn't treat people well. They did a lot of things. I just didn't, just didn't like, it wasn't a bad company. It's probably no better or worse than, than most of the other majors. I, I think just working for a big company just wasn't my thing. It was great training ground working overseas kind of brought me out of my shell. I, I'm a somewhat introverted person, but you know, when you're, all of a sudden thrown in Europe, a bunch of different cultures and all that, all of a sudden, you know, you have to 
you have to kind of blossom to exist. And, and so in 1992, 12 years after starting Unical, Unical did what I consider a very dumb thing. They wanted to uh, cut back the labor force, which is fine, but if it's your company or my company, if you want to cut back your labor force, you are going to take your poor performing uh, employees and and get rid of them. Unical just said, you know what, we want to reduce our workforce 10, by 10% and anybody who wants to go can go. And so I, I, I was first in line because I had been thinking about starting my own oil company. Um, I talked to a couple people about doing that. And when they said, well, we'll pay you to leave, I, like I said, I was first in line. Um, so, yeah, the first couple years uh, was tough. I, I started with no money. I started uh, my oil company with $5,000, not $5 million or $5 billion. I started $5,000, which, uh, as you can imagine, even back then, that didn't go very far. Although I negotiated a great, I, I knew that Unical had an empty office in uh, little city south of Santa Barbara called Carpinteria and I knew it was sitting there and so I, I, I said I'll take that off your hands I'll, I'll and he said, well just throw us some you have to give us a little cash and I said how about $70 $75 I said okay so I had a full office with you know utilities everything for $75 but even so it was tough and, and it took uh, almost two years uh, almost exactly two years before I acquired my first property, and <clears throat> I paid a grand grand total of a hundred to end up being about one hundred fifteen thousand dollars, which doesn't sound like much money, but when you have five thousand dollars in the bank, it, it might as well be one hundred fifteen billion dollars. Um, but eventually, I um, I was able to uh, raid my four hundred one k. I had a college fund for my a uh, little kid that we had started, didn't have much, but a couple thousand dollars. I put money on credit card. Uh, I borrowed a little bit of money from my parents. They didn't have much money. It's not like I was born with a silver spoon in my mouth. My my dad is a school teacher, but I borrowed $10,000 from him. My wife borrowed $10,000 from her mom, and we just cobbled together uh, enough money to barely close the deal. And <clears throat> then, then after that, it's off to the races. We took that little field and increased production and decreased expenses and took a property that was just breaking even to within a year we had a cash flow in about 200,000 a month. Um, that's about 2.4 million a year. And that, that allowed us to acquire another property, did the same thing there, uh, turned that field around. And then two years after, so we closed our first deal April 1st, 19, 94 and, and two years uh well one year after that exactly on april 1st uh 1995 we closed our third acquisition the beverly hills field which gave us critical mass and the critical mass allowed us to establish a banking relationship with a, a large uh or a medium-sized texas uh, bank that no longer exists they merged with wells fargo and but we had for the first time, we had excess credit capacity. So I think we had a $13 million borrowing base. Borrowing base is basically how much they allow you to draw. And we only had, uh, at that time, probably about $4 million in debt. So we had $9 million just so I could write a check out to do anything. <clears throat> and so then we, we just used that to really leverage things up. And from there, it was off the races. So long-winded way of answering your question, 
I, I think Benico started to come prominent probably when we got our first offshore uh, property uh, a couple years after that, uh, the South Elwood field off of Santa Barbara. And that was, uh, it was a, a great, great, great field that we bought it for a song and a dance that I think we paid $16 million for it. And at one time when oil prices were, were very high, uh, I think the 2P value, the proven probable value on that was uh, discounted 10%, about $2 billion. So uh, that $15 million uh, did a lot of good for that acquisition. So I think that's when we started to come seen as being a real player. Certainly in California, we were getting people's attention. People knew who Venico was. Uh, prior to that, you know, I, I couldn't get in the front door of a bank or a, an oil company. Uh, uh, but after that, you know, after people saw, you know, when you're, when people see that you have a platform, an oil platform, it, it somehow makes you more real, even though, you know, the reserves are what you're valued at. But when people see a physical platform, the bankers see it, they go, wow, you guys are real. So I guess that's, that's when we started to become a more prominent company is uh, uh, late, late 90s. Certainly a strong start, but were there any hurdles that got in the way? Was there anything that really limited Benico from becoming what you felt was its max potential, or was it pretty easy along the whole way? You know, it's funny. There, I don't think there's an entrepreneur in the world who hasn't had major speed bumps, not little ones. <laughs> my first... My first big speed bump after, you know, having to raise that $115,000, which at the time was formidable. But the next one was uh, Enron became an investor on my 40th birthday to the day. So my, on, uh, on June 29th, 1998, Enron invested uh, $60 million into our company and acquired about a 30% interest in the company. Uh, it's hard to imagine back in those days, but Enron was the good housekeeping fill of approval. They were, <laughs> they were it. If Enron invests in your company, you were, you were labeled as an up and coming company. And it was one of Enron's biggest investments in the oil industry at the time. And everything seemed great. Well, right after Enron uh, put their money in, oil prices declined. They declined and they declined more. So at the end of 98, early 99, um, we had one field, the South Elwood field, the offshore field. I think the lowest uh, the oil price ever hit there, it was three or four dollars a barrel. <clears throat> you know, think of that 10 cents a gallon. What can you buy for 10 cents a gallon? And it was the industry, you know, I've, certainly people in, new to the industry now, I think one of the words I think you we talked about via email was that these are unprecedented times we're in now. I guess with regards to coronavirus, it's unprecedented, but I've, I've lived through two worse oil price downturns than going on right now. So uh, in 1998, 99, kind of that winter, when our local oil price down you know, three or $4 a barrel, that was, that was tough. But we actually thrived uh, during that period. We, uh, you know, the old, old saying, buy low, sell high, our company always did the best when oil prices were low because when everybody else is panicking, that's when we would come in and strike a, uh, a good deal. And, and sure enough, in early 99, we bought a uh, total of five platforms from Chevron and paid $6 million for it. 
And as oil price rebounded, our first full year of cash flow after 99 from the year 2000, those properties cash flowed about $45 million. So, you know, we were, we were really good about not panicking when oil price were low. And so we survived the low uh, price downturn, continued to grow. We were the fastest growing uh, oil company in the country two years in a row. Everything was great until 2002. 2002, Enron um, started having major problems, and, and maybe a little bit before, at least some of your time, but uh, in, in 2002, uh, actually it's 2001, Enron started having financial problems, and all of a sudden I feel like I'm dealing with the mafia, that the two vice presidents come to Santa Barbara and meet with me, and all of a sudden, these guys who had formerly been nice are not so nice now. And they're demanding that we pay them off, even though we had no obligation to do so. And they made us a dumb proposal. And I told them, this, this is a dumb proposal, which <laughs> it was. Um, and that commenced a battle for control of Venico. So Enron wanted to figure out a way to force Venico to either buy them out or liquidate. And if they liquid, if Venico liquidated, then they would be paid off. But so what they did is roughly at that point in time, roughly, I owned a third of the company. I had two partners that owned a third, and Enron owned roughly a third. But nobody had control. I was CEO, and and you know I thought everything was great. Well, unbeknownst to me, my two partners got together with Enron. Um, they were later found guilty in, in a Delaware court of uh, breaching their fiduciary duty as directors. Um, not that that ended up doing me a lot of good, but they got together, Enron and my two partners, and voted me out of my own company in in 2002. And <laughs> talking about being shocked, you know, one minute you're you have the fastest growing oil company in the United States, and then everything's going great with the company. We're growing by leaps and bounds. We're up to, you know, 18, 20,000 net barrels a day. We're, you know. In terms of oil reserves, I think we're probably about 15th biggest company in the country at that point in time. Um, and then all of a sudden, I'm, I'm voted out of my own company. And <clears throat> with Enron, they were just trying to get cash, although, you know, the Benico investment, you know, Enron ended up being, I don't know, $35 billion in debt or something like that. It was certainly wasn't going to solve their problems, but they were trying to get as much cash as they could. Uh, my other partners, uh, the, the principal guy was a, a guy that really was pretty worthless as I came to found out. I, I didn't know him before I started my company. We'd been introduced uh, to each other and, and I didn't really know him, but it seemed like things were going well. We were all making more money than we ever dreamed and the company's growing, everything's good, but it was the ego factor. The number two guy wanted to be the number one guy. So anyway, they voted me out of my company in, in 2002 and all of a sudden I'm feeling pretty stupid. I feel, you know, trying to remove the, the knife from my back. Um, but I didn't whine or cry about it. What I did is I started a second oil company. I started Marcus Energy. I moved to Denver, started Marcus Energy. And that company took off. And keep in mind, all my all my assets are tied up in Venico. It was a private company. So on paper, I was worth a ton of money. I mean, at that point in time, I was probably worth, I don't know, 50, 60, $70 million, something like that. But I couldn't buy a cup of coffee with, you know, a stock in a private company. You can't borrow against it. You can't do much with stock in a private company. So I started my new company again without 
very much cash, and we took off like a rocket as well. In the meantime, I, I had two lawsuits against uh, the board of directors, my former company, and after two long years, I prevailed, and I first bought out my partners um, really cheap, and, and then once I had their, uh, their shares, then I was able to change board, put myself in as CEO, and then I go to Enron and go, I'm back. <laughs> and it was, it was pretty funny because they did not see that company. They thought the partners hated each other so much. In fact, they told my lawyer, they said, these guys hate each other so much, so they won't even enter the same room. <laughs> yes, I did hate them, but I'm still a businessman. And um, I, by buying them out, I could see, you know, this is the end of the game. And, and so I bought out my partners, bought out at Enron at the end of 2004. And all of a sudden, I had 100% uh, ownership in Benico. And also at that same time, oil prices started to really take off. So, yeah, I, you know, any anybody who's ever started a company, I, I don't know of anybody I've ever met. Uh, an entrepreneur that didn't have dark days. There's, it just kind of comes with it. It's anybody who thinks you have a company and it's all fun and roses and unicorns and all that. It's that's just maybe it happens once in a while, but it certainly didn't happen to me. Oh, I definitely understand that. But it certainly seems like you worked every possible angle of Venico, from starting the business to owning it privately to going public to being voted out, coming back and owning it again. Do you have a preference in the arena of private versus public? What are the advantages? Which one do you prefer? Yeah, so in 2006, we went public. And one of the main reasons I want to go public is, uh, you know, I didn't start a company to make a bunch of money. I know that price sounds funny, but I, I want to just do things the right way. And, but once Venico started becoming worth uh, a lot of money, uh, you know, by the time we went public, I think my shares were probably worth $600 million, something like that. Um, I wanted to do something with that money. To me, one of the dumbest things is you make a ton of money is to just sit on it and hoard it. it to me, that's pointless. Well, we, you know, we all need a certain amount of money to live on. Beyond that, it's, it's play money, right? And so, I, I, over the years, I've become very philanthropic, both my wife and I, and by going public, I was able to do something with those shares. Because again, a private company, it's really hard to do much uh, financially with those shares. Uh, you either ultimately sell the company or go public, and I chose to go public. And uh, and first thing I did is I donated uh, 100 million dollars. Uh, 50 million went to the Denver Scholarship Foundation to send um, kind of unloved kids to uh, the cause. So it's the Kids kind of at the lower end of the spectrum in terms of the grades. Uh, kids have financial need. Um, and having been one of those kids growing up in Southwest Denver, I went to one of the worst high schools in Denver. Uh, those kids were near and dear to my heart. So we started that up, and then we started our own foundation. So to answer your question, I mean, I needed to go public or sell the company off to, to be able to do what I, you know, really kind of move my heart. Um, but of course, being public is uh <laughs> it's a tough business you know you, you're dealing with analysts all the time and, and the changing changing wants and needs of investors you know when, when we went public most companies like ourselves you know acquisition and development company you know we acquire existing properties and we develop them 
but we don't do any exploration to speak of in a very small amount. Um, we were we were valued at seven times cash flow, um, and that math worked for me. You know, you could buy back then a property for four or five times cash flow, and you're, you put it into your company, and it's worth seven times cash flow, and works well. Well, that was about the time shortly after we went public that all the shale producers started taking off like a rocket. These companies growing 40, 50% a year. You know, it's high risk, high reward kind of stuff. Everything worked well at, you know, $100 oil and $10 gas or eight or $10 gas. And all of a sudden, the public markets did not, they didn't, they weren't showing us the love. You know, we all of a sudden, even though we kept growing, the value kept, the company came down and we were trading down three and a half, four times cash flow. And now all of a sudden, you know, you're trying to buy an oil property at five or six times cash flow, but it's only being valued in your own company at four times. And clearly, you know, since we're all went to school mines, you can, we can all understand that math doesn't work at all. Mm -hmm. So I took the company private at that point in time. And, uh, which was an ordeal. And I'm, I'm the only one who's ever been able in the last 30 years that I know of to take an oil company from uh, public to private. It's an ordeal. There's automatic lawsuits. Uh, it's, it's not a fun process to go through, but nevertheless, we did it. And that's, that's the point when I retired, um, only to see the company eventually disappear when, um, we had a pipeline that we sold uh, about 60 or 70% of our production went to one pipeline in California. And that company, uh, Plains All American, had the worst operated pipeline in the history of the oil industry. They <laughs> ended up finding that 70 miles of that pipeline had to be condemned because it was just Swiss cheese. And that was the end of our company. You know, one day everything's great, oil prices are high. Next day there's a leak, pipeline shut in, and our biggest fields are all, you know, one day they're worth one half billion dollars or so, uh, proven value, uh, next day they're worth zero. Uh, but easy come, easy go. Oh, most definitely. Earlier, you did mention though, that you feel maybe the word unprecedented is being tossed around just a little too much. While it is certainly a significant situation, although you wouldn't call it unprecedented, what do you make of prices in the negative territory and storage bursting at the seams. Why perhaps is this different, but not as bad as the other downturns you've seen? Well, just in the scale, I mean, first of all, you know, those negative prices, that was a financial thing. You know, I don't think I, the day that, you know, they reported the oil was negative 40 or I don't know, whatever, $40 a barrel. Uh, that was about the lowest I saw oil price go. And I looked in California and they didn't go below $18, $17, $18 per so having been my own company at times with, when we were down at $3 a barrel, uh, $3.5 a barrel. Um, and that lasted, you know, that downturn lasted a couple of years, several years. I think it lasted roughly from um, 98, 99, started creeping back up, but it didn't really take off until 2003 or 4. I think this right now feels really bad. You know, we're into this two months so far, um, none of us know where oil price is going to take off. And it, it looks to me like oil price is going to bounce back to, you know, $40 a barrel by 
early next year. So in the big scheme of things, it feels horrible right now. And there's no doubt there's bankruptcy. There's, there's all kinds of bad stuff going on. Um, but I, I don't think it's going to be as, as deep or as long lasting as some of the previous ones. The other downturn I'd been was in 2000, uh, sorry, 1986. Uh, when prior to that oil price had really taken off, oil embargoes and so on and so forth, gone up to $35, $36 a barrel. And then all of a sudden it crashed and went down to $9 or $10 a barrel. And that, that downturn lasted from 86 until probably about 1994 or five, that's about when oil price finally took off. So that lasted seven, eight years. And it was a dismal time to be in the industry. And a lot of people talked about it being the end of the oil industry. Uh, and, and that was a tough time. Now, I was working for a big company, so I was sheltered in large part from that. I didn't lose my job. And, and so in that sense, for an employee, it probably wasn't as bad. It's bad if you're an independent, but if you're with a major oil company, it wasn't so bad. I mean, independents are always going to get you know, the best of the good times and the worst of the bad times. Certainly right now, you know, industries in chaos, uh, oil prices are low. Um, probably the bigger problem right now is all the private equity that fuels the oil industry is fleeing uh, the industry. That, you know, everybody got so burned. Um, you know, all these, I think, idiots, these financial idiots uh, from New York who started investing in the oil industry when oil's up to $100 a barrel. I mean, to me, that was idiotic, right? You buy low, sell high. You don't want to invest at the peak of the market, but there were tens of billions of dollars put in, and almost, I, I would guess, 90% of that money was lost. <laughs> and so it's going to take a long time, I think, for the oil industry to people to get comfortable putting back in that kind of money. And it was an unhealthy amount of money. There's too much... Uh, equity being put into the uh, oil industry and uh, but that's the whole oil industry it's, it swings from super good times to super bad times it doesn't ever seem like there's middle of the ground it'd be nice if you know we went five years at fifty dollars a barrel rather than hundred ten dollars a barrel one day and then down to 18 a couple of years later so um so yeah, I wouldn't, it's certainly not unprecedented. And then, and then before my career, you know, if you ever read any oil history, uh, you know, it's, it's just it's just the nature of our industry. It's, you know, when oil prices get high, we start producing a lot of oil, a lot of investments made, gets production too high, production gets too high, causes a drop in oil prices. And, and you know, such massive swings, you know, we 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 don't have, and a lot of people think there's this big cartel and the majors, you know, control the world and all that. Well, if that's the case, they don't do a very good job because it's, <laughs> you know, the, the, none of this is good for anybody. No, of course not. You briefly touched on it a little bit earlier, but you mentioned there's going to be a significant amount of bankruptcies. Obviously, people are going to struggle. Do you think anything will come out of this downturn? Any new standards, any new practices? Or will it be mainly inconsequential by the time we reach the end? Well, the good thing about these downturns is it always drives innovation and inefficiencies. I mean, I, I, I don't follow the oil industry as closely as I used to, obviously, because I 
been retired now uh, quite a few years, but you, I do see that people are driving down the cost of drilling. They're getting more efficiency with their these multi-stage frack. So it's definitely going to lead to efficiencies and almost certainly going to lead to innovations. You know, it's, it's the innovation, the, the, you know, the shell, shell revolution, both oil and gas has been, it, it, to me, it's unbelievable what's happened that people can drill 10,000 foot laterals, you know, I don't know, 50 stage, I don't know, 100 stage, probably 5,000 stage fracks by now. I don't know what they're doing and, and do it in a safe manner. Now, we don't get any credit for doing it in a safe manner in the, in the, in the public side, but I think the good thing of, of this is it's, it's almost certainly going to drive uh, innovation and efficiencies. It's going to weed out the Johnny come lately. You know, when oil prices get high, there's always the Johnny come lately that want to jump in the industry. Uh, and a lot of its employees, a lot of its investors, and it has a good way of weeding out people that <laughs> shouldn't have been in the industry in the first place. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's tough to go through it. Uh, but I'll tell you one thing about our industry is, is I and I've certainly learned it well, is if you can survive the tough times, there will be good times ahead. Now, you know, for, I can't remember which one of you has just got out of school. It's, it's not fun getting out of school right now. Um, you know, there's, I don't think there's hundreds of job offers right now, uh, to say the least. But, you know, for people, you know, a lot of friends, uh, in 80, you know, back in 86 when I was a young engineer, a lot of people uh, got laid off. Some went back and uh, got an advanced degree. Um, some people uh, took jobs in the field. And, uh, but all those, all those guys that lost their jobs, they all, they all bounced back. You know, nobody died. Um, you know, it's it tough. It wasn't fun. And when you're in the middle of a downturn, I, I think one of the, the toughest parts, it feels like it's going to go on forever. I mean, we're into this downturn right now for three months, but it feels like three years. And it feels like it's going to be another, you know, three years. Uh, but it won't. I mean, uh, you know, the solution to low oil prices is low oil prices. So when prices are low, people stop drilling, uh, production goes down, oil prices go up. So, you know, there, there, is, there is light at the end of the tunnel. I know it doesn't feel good now if you don't have a job. Uh, but the, the thing to do for, for um, anybody who's lost their job is don't give up hope. Stay in the industry. Do whatever you can. I mean, it, it means you have to go uh, take a restaurant, good job. You got to work construction. I mean, I, I knew people who did all that. And, you know, when I started my company, I had two years um, without any income, with zero income. And, you know, I figured out, my wife and I figured out a way to survive that. So, you know, it's, it's all solvable. That's, you know, what being an engineer is about is you take, okay, these are, this the conditions I have. How do I solve this problem? And and hopefully, you know, mine. We've got some good engineers there. I hope people, you know, just believe in themselves. That's definitely something I like to hear. It's a refreshing take, as a lot of people have a lot of negativity going on, considering you see just low prices, bad posts on LinkedIn about people losing their jobs. But I agree, it will probably feel a little bit better once I do land myself a position, being three weeks out of school. But on a broader scale, rather than individuals, let's say today you come out of retirement, 
you're working for a company, private, public, whatever. What advice would you give to these companies or what would you personally do to try and navigate these waters and minimize financial risk? Well, I'll tell you, going back to, I, I touched on it briefly before, is we always had our best success in times like this. Times like this, there's companies that will panic. Uh, they think oil is going to be $20 a barrel forever. Uh, you can strike really good deals right now. Um, in fact, uh, I mentioned briefly that I bought the, those five platforms from Chevron for $6 million. What I didn't tell you is, you know, that was at the bottom of the market. And uh, our borrowing base and our ability to borrow dropped. And I had to go back to Chevron and renegotiate the deal. So rather than give up on the deal and say, I don't have $6 million, I went back to Chevron and said, look, I can, I, I'd like to structure this. I'll still give you the $6 million, but I can give you $2 million now. And I'll give you two million next year and two million the following year. And keep in mind that's the property that the full, first full year we had it, we uh, made about forty-five, fifty million dollars on that thing. So right now, I, I in some ways I'd love to be back in the industry because I know I could get good deals right now. There's people who have too much leverage. People, a lot of people just flat out give up. You know, they just they think it's too hard for them and and. I think that's one of my strengths is I, I have as much tenacity as anybody out there. And, you know, when, when I get thrown a curveball, you know, I, I don't whine about it. I just say, okay, how, how am I going to make this thing work? And I, I, I think right now people, the smart people are going, this is a really good time right now. You know, I can, I can make deals. You may have to structure the deals. Uh, you know, there's always a, an art to that, but there's a lot of companies, uh, the bigger companies are going to want to be shedding their, uh, they're filled with $20 operating expenses, uh, that always happens. And, and, you know, smart guys from mines and other good engineering school can take those existing fields, uh, with little tender loving care, you can cut expenses. Our first field we got, the, the way we really made money is I just put better pumps in the well, a uh, different type of pump. And it wasn't anything, it wasn't high-tech stuff, but I just knew there was a better way to lift those wells. I guarantee there's 100 fields out there, probably 500 fields that the smart guy can go in and, and really create a lot of value. And then when oil prices go, come up and come back up, then it's just going to enhance it even more. So this is actually a really good time for people who are tough, tough-minded to do it. You know, anybody can make money at $100 a barrel. It's a lot harder to make money at this time, but, but on the other hand, it's a great time. It's a great time to be getting into the industry or trying to build a company. So in terms of advice you would give to up-and-coming entrepreneurs positioning themselves to start a business with these depressed prices, you would pretty much say strike while the iron's hot and try to make the best of a bad situation. Exactly. You know what? The one thing I wasn't afraid to do is I wasn't afraid to pick up the phone and call people all day long. And you know, 90, 95% of the time people are either, they don't want to sell or they're not serious about it or they're unrealistic. You know, a guy thinks this field's worth $30 million when it's really worth five. And he'll sit there and tell you, yeah, well, when, when all price is $100 a barrel, this thing was worth, you know, $35 million. And they go, well, that's nice, but it's now $20 a barrel. So 
but but I think a lot of a lot of people in the oil industry are, are unrealistic. But five or ten percent of the time, you'll find somebody who said, "You know what? I've had my company for years. I'm I'm ready to quit, or I need to sell." You know, the bigger companies, like I said, they're they always sell at times like these to get rid of their low uh, margin properties. You know, the ones with the high operating expenses. And there's deals to be had. There, I guarantee there's smart people out there right now. Uh, they're cutting deals as we speak. While the other 90% are whining, the, the 10% people, the smart guys, are making money right now. And you kind of talked about people who had been laid off, what they can do to try to get through these times. But what about the case of people, kind of like myself, who graduated this year, were excited to breach into the industry, and finding that it's just a little bit more difficult right now? What advice do you have that they can start with today to begin to differentiate themselves as candidates or even get a foot in the door somewhere? What can we do? Well, I think, you know, if possible, uh, take any kind of job, whether it's with a service company, uh, whether it's um, working in the field. Uh, you know, the, the hardest thing for an oil company, once you get any size, is getting good employees. And I'll tell you what, if if somebody had come to me and said, look, I'm willing to work in the field, I'm willing to work at reduced rate, I'm willing to, I'm willing to intern at $10 an hour uh, with the idea that, you know, when prices bounce back, you know, I'll be the, you know, I'll prove to you I'm worth the money. Uh, that's the kind of guy I would love to hire, absolutely love to hire. So I think the thing to do is just, the main thing is don't give up hope. Just believe in the long term. Yeah, it sucks now. You, you don't have enough money to even get a beer, but <laughs> just do something right and try and stay in the industry uh you know there's absolutely nothing wrong with working in the field I, you know the two summers i worked in the field was very important to me because i i got to see what actually happens in the field i i you know could understand the perspective of the guy in the field who's ignored by the engineers and geologists and management um so I, I think the thing to do is don't give up. Take any job you can. Like I said, uh, wait tables at night. And even if you have to go to some company and say, look, give me three months. I'll, I'll work for free for three months just to prove my value. And if I haven't proved it, then don't, don't hire me. But there, there are people right now that would want to find people with, with good work ethics, people willing to work hard. Because you know the management at these at the companies, they know that they know they're going to need people. There's there's not a company out there. Yes, they may have to make some short-term layoffs, but in the long term, they know they're going to need more employees. So I think so. There's 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 probably some independents that would would be willing to hire somebody on a structured basis. They might you might have to work in the field. You might have to work for a service company. Um, but the, the thing is, keep trying, don't give up. And, you know, if you have to take a job as a waiter or go into construction, uh, you know, our, our governor, our former governor, Hickenlooper, got laid off in 86. And, and, you know, he didn't sit there and whine and cry. I mean, he got out of the industry, but, you know, he became a restaurateur and, and uh, ended up going down a different path. But there's, there's a lot of doors there. It's just, it, I know it doesn't feel good. I understand. I get it. Uh, you know, I, I had my back to the wall when oil price was four dollars a barrel in, in 1999. I'll tell you, it it didn't feel good at all, and I was wondering, 
you know, week to week, how long I could tough it out. Um, but we kept, you know, trying to figure out ways to cut expenses. And, you know, we all had to, all the management and engineers, we all had to take a cut in pay, uh, to minimize the layoffs. We didn't have to lay off some people, but um, there are opportunities out there. There always are. Love to hear that. And I think it's definitely empowering wisdom that a lot of people my year and even maybe a couple years before needed to hear. So again, Mr. Marcus, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast today. I think we've about fully picked your brain for everything we were interested in, but are there any organizations you would like to take this time to promote? Well, of course, I'm a big fan. I've started two nonprofits here in Denver. One is the Denver Scholarship Foundation. And, you know, it, it really, it does provide, you know, we don't provide scholarships, the Denver Scholarship Foundation for, um, you know, the, the straight A students, we provide scholarships for those that, that, you know, for whatever reason, their grades aren't as high or they did, you know, a lot of them have pretty good grades, but they don't have financial resources to go to college. So the Denver Scholarship Foundation is uh, an amazing organization. Uh, so I, I guess that'd be the one. The other thing, of course, to help out is, you know, the people who have not right now, the people out of jobs, you know, food bank, Red Cross, any service like that, they all need money. There's a lot of people, as bad as it feels for, for you guys, imagine if you don't have a degree of any kind. Uh, some people, I think it'll be years before they get back you know, to a real job. I, a lot of restaurants are, I don't see the restaurant business coming back in full force anytime soon. I mean, maybe at best it gets back to 50% of capacity. I don't know, but um, anything like that, the, the, there's a lot of people hurting right now. Uh, so any of those organizations would be great. And, and the last thing I'd say also going back to the thing is work harder than the next guy. You know, there's always a place for that guy who works harder. And right now, you know, the place to work hard is the guy who contacts 30 companies is going to do better than the guy who contacts 20. And the guy who contacts 20 is going to do better than the guy who only contacts 10. You know, things don't happen by luck. Uh, you know, it's, it's hard work. And the guy who, uh, applies 40 different companies and figures out an angle. Like I said, maybe you propose you work for half price or something. Uh, the guy who's clever and harder work and more tenacious, he, that's the one that's going to survive. All right, Mr. Marcus. Thanks again for taking the time to speak with us. You provided a lot of great wisdom and insight. Until we see you next time, everybody, please take care.